Welcome to the Elmer EMC podcast. We want to support you on your journey with God. So here's this week's teaching. It's great to be here this morning and to have this wonderful opportunity to serve the Elmer EMC church family. Uh, it's it's kind of different. I've had like about uh, 10 weeks off completely, or maybe actually more than that, maybe close to 12. And uh, this morning, even though it might feel uncomfortable for you, it resembles very much the last eight weeks I had in Mindamoya before moving down here, uh, except I did not have people to talk to. All I had was a computer, and I looked at this little green dot, and there was my camera, and I had a young fellow who was my technician who was about 10 feet away, and that was it in that little room. And uh, the Lord was with us, and uh, we were able to continue serving. Uh, Pete, I am glad that Brian's been able to tell you a lot about me. I didn't know he knew that much. Um, and I'm sure that uh, maybe over just the few short weeks we've been here that he's gotten to know more. Uh, so it's a real privilege to be here, and uh, you'll get to know a little bit more about me and Gloria and our families uh, this morning and over the weeks to come, I'm sure. So I'd like to begin by reading from uh, the letter that we know as First Peter. I'm just going to read a few selected uh, paragraphs, just to kind of uh, get us into the text. Uh, I provided Anne with a Bible reading schedule, and I trust many of you have been able to make use of that. Uh, I'm a firm believer in reading Scripture in large passages. Uh, I'm convinced that we've, uh, we've tended to read our Bibles and preach our Bibles in sound bites, and as a result, we don't do justice to the message of the Bible. And uh, it's not a collection of proof texts, but it's a text with a message for us. And so I'm going to begin with the opening verses, and then I'm going to skip into chapter 2, because uh, we're looking at some themes that run through both of these chapters. So it's, we begin. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, Exiled, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And then I'm going to jump to chapter 2 beginning at verse 4. As you come to him, that is Jesus, the living stone rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. But now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and the stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message. 
which is also what they are destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. May God bless the reading of his word. 2020 is a pivotal year. And I think it's probably the most pivotal year in most, if not all, of our lives. Uh, those who are at least a little bit older than I am, who may have been children in the World War II era, may have seen some other really pivotal moments. But uh, even though I can remember when JFK was assassinated or when uh, we had the first moon landing, uh, they begin to seem to pale in their impact on our direct personal lives compared to what COVID has done. And so in 2020, we're faced with a pandemic. We are seeing protests all over the world, but especially in our neighbors to the south of us. And then we're also in a presidential election year. And it seems like it's all piling up on us as we see. But we need to recognize that as we look to the future, because I'm looking at following Jesus in our post-COVID world, uh, that's titled intentionally, because we got to get used to living in our COVID world if we're going to be prepared to live in the post-COVID world, because it will be a different world that, than what we have now. There will be challenges for the church, but I also believe great, great opportunities, maybe opportunities we never had before. And it's in that kind of a pivotal time that Peter wrote this first letter. Uh, he wrote it for the church for times just like this. Uh, really, Peter didn't write it. Maybe he dictated it, but a fellow by the name of Silvanus at the end of this book we're told that he is basically Paul's sec or Peter's secretary. He probably wrote it around 63 or 64 AD. He wrote it from Rome, even though he used a code name for Rome and described it as Babylon. And Caesar was Nero at that time. So he was living in a time when, when there was tremendous upheaval because in the very near future, after this letter was written, was the great fire in Rome. Not too many years later, Peter, uh, uh, Nero would have com committed suicide, and then there would have been tremendous upheaval in the empire. And persecution was on the horizon. We know that there definitely was persecution in Rome. We're not certain of it in the area where these people lived who received this letter, but we know that they were terribly misunderstood. They were treated as outsiders, and they endured a tremendous amount of ostracism. You see, there was pressure for them to fit in. Because now that they were worshipers of Jesus, they didn't go to the local temple anymore. 
Now that they were worshipers of Jesus and followers of Jesus, uh, they now lived very different lives from their neighbors, which must have created a tremendous amount of confusion. And what's wrong with you? Why are you different? Why aren't you walking in step with the rest of us? And so there was a clash that was brewing. We could describe it as a clash between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Caesar. And so that's one reason why I've called my message this morning, Identity and the Politics of Jesus' Kingdom. There's a reason why I call it Identity. Uh, this little letter uh, really has three major themes in it. The first one is identity that I'll look at today. The second one really is how to live in a world that is against you, a world that opposes you, a world where there's the potential, and not only for ostracism, for, but for outright persecution and harm. And then woven through, based on our salvation in Jesus Christ, Peter says we have a living hope, and we'll look at that hope on the third week. But today, it's about identity and the politics of Jesus' kingdom. Identity, it's an important thing in our lives. But identity is always the foundation for something. It's not the end of something. Uh, when, when, when I began our ministry in, uh, uh, on Manitoulin, both in Mindamoya and in the opening years, it was a two-point charge with the Spring Bay Church as well. Uh, when Gloria and I and our family arrived, one of the first things I did to get involved in the community was to get involved in the local scouting movement and activity. And so they said, oh, great, we need somebody. And uh, they had, a, they had a, a little group of uh, 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 JK, kindergarten, grade one kids, and uh, that age level in the scouting movement is called Beavers. And so in, in those opening days, we started out, and we always had an opening ceremony. We sang the national anthem, we said the Lord's Prayer, and then we had our call out. I remember we had to crouch down with our elbows on our knees and our fingers hooked like little beaver's teeth, and, and I, as the leader, would shout out, Who are you and what do you do? And then all the boys and girls and I would jump up and we would shout, Beavers, 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 sharing, sharing sharing it was about who we are and what we do. And that's very much what this opening section of Peter's letter is all about. It's about who we are, our identity, and what we do because of who we are. I'd just like to make a couple of general comments about identity as I begin. These are comments that, have uh, that emerge from just pondering Scripture a lot, what does Scripture really say about identity, and, uh, and, and just, just thinking the whole thing through. Well, where does identity really come from? So these are conclusions, but I want them as things for you to ponder on and uh, I think the rest of the message will begin to bear it out for you. But uh, these really aren't what I want to talk about, but I think they're important conclusions for our day and age. The first is identity is a gift. In the Bible, identity is not something that people create for themselves or invent for themselves or determine for themselves. Instead, it is something that is given to them as a gift. In the passages we read this morning, 
you'll see that you, know, you are God's chosen. You are his elect. You are his precious possession. This is all because Jesus shed his blood and he's redeemed you and, and you belong to Christ. And so all these things are gifts. It's just like, for example, my name Ray is not something I gave myself. It's an important part of my identity. I mean, when people ask me, who are you? The first thing I will say is, well, I am Ray. But my parents gave me that name. It was a gift from my parents. And so an important part to realize is that so much of our identity is not something that we control or that we determine. It's something that is given to us as a gift that we ought to embrace. Secondly, identity is rooted in relationships and in community. Much of my identity is rooted in the family into which I was born. Much of what I am has been predetermined without my choosing. I did not choose my parents. I did not choose my family. I did not choose my heritage. And yet, by those relationships, all these wonderful things have been given to me. And then for us as Christians, both as a community, and I would say primarily as a community, and then as individuals, our identity is rooted in Christ. So, for example, we read here that, that he, Peter addresses these believers as God's elect. Well, why are they elect? Well, we understand the word has a lot of theological ramifications, and it has to do with God's choosing. But ultimately, we are elect because Jesus is the elect one. We are God's chosen because Jesus is God's chosen one. We'll notice here, too, as we go further along, it talks about you are living stones. Why are we living stones? Because Jesus is the chief cornerstone. And so it's because of our connection with Jesus that these things are a reality in our lives. And so when we talk about our identity as Christians, what we're really talking about is our identity in Christ. And then just one last conclusion about identity. Identity precedes and produces activity and behavior. I'm not who I am because of what I do. Ultimately, I do what I do because of who I am. And so it's, it's because we are followers of Jesus that we have this identity, and out of that identity, our connection with Jesus, that determines how we live our lives, how we behave, the nature of our activity in this world. Now, the passages I read this morning, you'll notice that there are long lists that touch on identity. We're God's elect. We are strangers and sojourners and aliens and exiles in this world. We read that we are God's chosen, that we are living stones. We are dressed as, as, uh, as children obey, uh, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word we, we could have read in, at the beginning of chapter 2. We are a part of a royal priesthood, a holy priesthood. All these are parts of our identity, and they're very dense, and I can't touch on all of them this morning. I already promised Pete I'd be 25 minutes, and I think I'm already going to be over that. 
So anyways, I just want to isolate my thoughts to two of these identities that Peter names and some of their implications. The, the first identity is he describes us as aliens and strangers. Uh, we can use the word foreigners. Some of these words carry with them the whole theme of exile. We'll look at the word scattered in just a few moments, but the word that's translated scattered is actually the, the Greek word, we use it in English, the word diaspora. And so it, talks, so it has these connections with the whole theme of exile, so that's what makes 1 Peter fit in very well with what Pastor Brian has been preaching on in recent weeks. But we're aliens and strangers. In these two densely packed passages, he really emphasizes this. In verses 1 and 2 at the very beginning, he says, you know, that he addresses this letter to God's elect, strangers or exiles in the world scattered throughout these Roman provinces. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia are all in the northern and western part of what we would now describe as modern-day Turkey. Uh, what we now call Turkey is also known as Asia Minor. In this passage, when it talks about Asia, it doesn't mean the continent of Asia, but the Roman province of Asia, which was at the far west end of Turkey on the Aegean Sea. And so Peter is addressing his letter to, to these believers, and he addresses them as exiles. But then in chapter 2, 11, and 12, he repeats this whole idea. He says, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners or aliens and strangers and exiles in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul, to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You'll notice I use the word aliens quite a bit. Part of that's because I grew up with the King James. But uh, part of it also is that uh, uh, while that is uh, an older term that we don't use as much, and when we think of the word alien today, we think of E.T., and we invite him to call home. But uh, when I was a youngster, uh, um, I grew up near Fort Erie, and so I grew up on American television. And uh, in January and February of every calendar year, there would be public announcements on the television wh which encouraged what they called resident aliens to register. And so the intent was in those days that those who were foreign citizens who were living in the U.S., whether they had a green card or a landed immigrant status or whatever they might have had, that they were still regarded as, as legal aliens in the country, but they had to register their whereabouts with the government every year. So what's meant by an alien or an exile or a stranger here is someone who isn't a citizen, someone who doesn't fit in, someone who is not a participant in all the rights and privileges and freedoms that a citizen might have. Now that doesn't mean that these people that Peter was writing to weren't Roman citizens. Many of them might have been, many were not. The intent here is not to say what they literally were, 
But what they now were in Christ, because of their relationship to Jesus, they were now out of step with their world. And so their neighbors regarded them as, man, you're strange. You don't fit in anymore. There's something different about you. And this difference was to result in their how they lived. They were to abstain from sinful desires that waged against their war against their soul. In other words, our moral and ethical behavior is determined by our relationship to Jesus, not what drives us and pushes us and what we desire any longer. And then in addition, he says, live such good lives. And these good lives are to be characterized, we see, by what he describes as good deeds that lead to God being glorified even by their neighbors who otherwise are, are, are very, uh, question, very much questioning them or they might even be uh, ostracizing them and mocking them as Christians, but they take note that there's something different about them. Good deeds that glorify God. Peter, in this passage, actually, he's applying the teaching of Jesus. Uh, it's one of my personal convictions that, that the letters of Peter and Paul in our New Testament, uh, Peter and Paul and the other apostles in those letters, are not adding to the teaching of Jesus. I'm convinced that they're applying the teaching of Jesus to very specific situations, answering the question of Christians of how do I live in my world now? So one of the, one of the benchmarks I like to follow is, okay, where, where is Peter in this instance, or maybe Paul, if I were looking at the book of Romans, uh, how might this passage be reflecting, let's say, a section of the Sermon on the Mount, for example? And that's exactly what Peter does here. Because in the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 and verse 16, we read, Let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. I mean, that's almost exactly what Peter says here. Live such good lives so that your neighbors will see your good deeds and glorify God. And so... Peter is applying the teaching of Jesus to our lives. As we look at this idea of being exiles or aliens and strangers, I want to spend a few moments thinking on a little adjective that he uses at the beginning of his letter to describe us as exiles and strangers in our world. And that's the word scattered. I've already alluded that it relates to the idea of exile and being a diaspora. Uh, the Jewish members of the early church would have very quickly picked up on that word and understood, and, and understood it. But now, too, this applied to even the Gentile believers among them who may have lived in that area for many generations already, but they are now included among God's scattered people in the world. I think there might be a little bit more behind Peter's thoughts here than just simply that they're exiles and they're scattered. I think maybe he could have in mind Jesus' teaching in the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. We're pretty familiar with it. Jesus tells the story. A man went out and he sowed seed, and he had an enemy, and his enemy sowed the seeds of weeds in among his wheat. 
and, and uh, the, this farmer's uh, hired hands all got uh, in a panic saying, look, our, your enemy has sown weeds in your wheat. Shall we go out and pull out the weeds now? And the, the farmer says, no, don't do it now, but wait until the harvest ripens, and then we'll separate the wheat and the weeds. And then later in that same chapter, Jesus gives some explanation of that parable. I'm only going to read uh, part of two verses uh, that particularly apply to us today. Here in Matthew 13, 37 and 38, Jesus interprets his parable this way. The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. We know that's Jesus. Jesus used that title, Son of Man, applied it to himself quite readily. I don't want to steal uh, Pastor Brian's thunder, but uh, Son of Man actually originates from the book of Daniel. And Daniel chapter 7, which I think that's where Brian wants to go next. So I will do my best to say no more. However, we know this is applied to Jesus. Jesus is the Son of Man. He's the sower. He's the one who sowed good seed. Now, in their day, when they planted seed, they didn't have a great big seed drill behind a tractor. Instead, they would be walking in their field. They would have a bag that would have a, a, almost like a, a large purse type of a, a uh, might be a good way of describing it. It would be an open sack with a, with a large handle that would drape over the shoulder, and they would just reach in the bag, grab a handful of seed, and they would scatter it. They would throw it or broadcast it on the field. And so he says here, the field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The sons or the children of the kingdom that's you and me. That's us. God's people in this world are like good seed scattered in the world. And God seems to have a way of scattering his people. For example, in, in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 4 and 5, we read that a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. Those that had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. And then it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria, Samaria and pro proclaimed Christ there. That early persecution of believers served a purpose for God, even though he may not have manipulated it. It was an inevitable reality because of their belonging to Jesus. Persecution came, they were scattered, the gospel spread. In a way, COVID has done much the same kind of thing, I think, for us today. Maybe a lot of you, and I'm going to look at the camera a little bit this, at this moment, maybe you're kind of resentful because you're stuck at home this morning and you were hoping to be out to church. Maybe you don't understand what's going on and you might even be asking yourself, what is God doing? Sometimes God needs to scatter his church. We love gathering together. 
we love to assemble in our buildings. We not only love the worship and the music, and, and I trust you love the preaching. I think you do. Uh, Brian's pretty enthusiastic. Uh, you, you also love the potlucks and the fellowships that you can have. And, and we love to be the church gathered. But sometimes God needs to scatter his church. Using the picture of seed, of grain once again. If uh, I've noticed, uh, you know, all the beautiful uh, fields of corn and soybeans, and that looks like the oats and barley are off, and the wheat will be combined very, very soon. And I love those golden fields. But uh, those golden fields would have never been a reality if the farmer would have kept his seed in the granary. It had to be scattered in order to produce a crop. I mean, God is out to produce a crop in our world, a crop of followers of Jesus, a crop of worshipers in this world, a crop of people who are committed to doing the will of God. And we, like seed, are being scattered. Uh, if I remember correctly, on the first Sunday when COVID kicked in and everything got shut down, which is in the week following about March the 15th, um, that uh, the first message I preached then was out of Philippians, and uh, the title of my message was uh, Shut In But Not Shut Down. You might be shut in at home. You might be confined in your movements. But that doesn't mean that the church has shut down. That doesn't mean that your living for Jesus has shut down. That doesn't mean that your opportunities to serve Jesus are shut down. You may now find that you have more opportunities than you ever had before. And so we are like seed that has been scattered. Now I'm going to motor on. The second thing I wanted to focus on in our identity this morning deals with our being living stones and royal priests. Or really, it's more accurately, a royal priesthood. Even though we, by extension, would say that we, we are all individually believer priests, it always talks about it in the collective in our New Testaments. It talks about priests in the plural, and a pa couple of passages I'll read in a moment. Peter always uses the word priesthood here, because it's what we are together, not just what we are individually. But we are living stones, and we are royal priests. We read this in verses 4 and 5 and 9 here in 1 Peter. In verses 4 and 5, he says, like, like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That is what we are. And out of that comes what we do. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We could maybe connect that with brothers and sisters I urge you in light of God's mercy in Romans 12, 1 and 2, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, we present ourselves, our sacrifices, to live lives of obedience in response to what God has done. And then in verse 9, he says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. That's who we are. But out of that comes our conduct, our behavior, the way we live. 
that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Here in verse 9, all the terminology that Peter uses is actually quoted from the book of Exodus. There in Exodus, it's applied to the nation of Israel. At the time, they are constituted as a nation at Mount Sinai, and they receive their covenant, and they receive the Ten Commandments. Uh, earlier, at the beginning of chapter 1, it talks about that, that God has, that we are God's elect and that we've been chosen by the Father according to his foreknowledge and we, have, we are being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit so for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of blood. The sprinkling of blood in that particular context has a number of illusions that we need to grasp. We most of the time grasp it in terms of being sprinkled with the atoning blood of Jesus that cleanses us of our sins and opens the way for forgiveness. But it's more than that. If we have these words that are connected from Exodus, where it says that we are a chosen people, uh, uh, a nation of priests or or a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people belonging to God, those are the very words Moses used when he performed a sacrifice at the base of Mount Sinai, and he sprinkled the blood on the whole nation of Israel because they were now entering into a covenant with God, and the blood sealed that covenant relationship. So that, that allusion to sprinkling with blood also refers to being tied to Jesus in the new covenant now. And there might be one more allusion in the sprinkling of blood. Because later on, when Aaron became the first high priest and his sons were ordained as priests as well, they too were sprinkled with blood as part of their being commissioned as priests. So Peter may have a triple application in mind here because we are this holy priesthood of God, his royal priesthood, and we've been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus that has given us this identity. And this identity that was applied to Israel is now applied to followers of Jesus. I'm going to skip a slide, uh, and we're just going to go right to a couple of references here. This whole theme of being a kingdom of priests is particularly dominant in the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, in the dedication or introduction of that book, we read, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Here's an expression of praise to Jesus. And, and Jesus has freed us from our sins uh, by, by his blood. This might be that sprinkling of blood once again. And it's connected with our being a kingdom and priests here to serve God, to bring him glory. And then in chapter 5 and verses 9 and 10, again, these are words of praise to Jesus. Here Jesus is the, the lion of the tribe of Judah who steps forward as a lamb who once had been slain, and now he takes the scroll because he's worthy to take it and to open it. And these words of praise are then poured out on Jesus. Jesus. 
You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. Reference to his cross, obviously. And with your blood, you purchased men or purchased people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's what God's in the business of doing this in the world today. And you've been made, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. It's amazing how much these verses express it as being a present tense reality and not just a future aspiration. And this is something that Jesus has already done in our world. We are a kingdom and priests. The politics of Jesus' kingdom is he uses nobodies, exiles and strangers, and he transforms them into a royal priesthood, kings and priests to serve him. And this actually reveals one of the great themes of the Bible. To me, it's one of the most exciting themes of the Bible. And, and it, it emerges all the way from the beginning to the end. Because I'm convinced that God's whole plan from the very beginning was to create this world to be a living temple in which he would, he would fill it with his presence and be a, 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 among his people in this temple and we would serve him as a royal priesthood. So here's just a quick survey of the Bible. See if I can do it in about a minute and a half or less. It emerges at creation. Uh, much of the creation language that's used actually is describing the building of a temple. And the words that are used when it talks about Adam and Eve uh, tending the garden and guarding it or keeping it, uh, those are words that are used about, uh, most often in the Old Testament, about the priests who were to tend and to serve and to guard the temple and the tabernacle in the future. And so many leading authors today uh, are, are seeing that God had this intent from the very beginning. And, of course, there's the fall. Adam and Eve rebelled against God, and the original purpose was, it, it wasn't canceled out, but it certainly got delayed, and the road to fulfillment was changed. But God never stopped that dream. And so many authors, one, one in particular, uh, has written a book called The Temple and the Mission of the Church. Uh, it's about that thick, in case you don't want to get into too heavy reading. But it's, uh, to me, it was a wonderful read. Maybe your eyes will glaze over, I don't know. But he goes on and he says, this whole theme actually continues in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because wherever they went in the land that God gave to Abraham they would build altars. And the intent behind the altar is that they would claim this land so that the whole land would become an extended place where God's dwelling would be among his people. And then this began to be realized even more with Moses and the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt, and now they're in the wilderness and God gives them the tabernacle that God may dwell among his people. And the tabernacle being a temporary dwelling became more permanent when Solomon built the temple. But that temple was destroyed and a little one came to replace it and the Jews always had this longing for a greater temple and then Jesus comes along. 
And what does Jesus say? Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. They thought Jesus was talking about Herod's physical temple. Jesus was talking about himself. He was the embodiment of the temple. He became the new temple in which the presence of God became a reality in this world. And, by extension now, we who believe in Jesus, the church, we're, being, we're described as a temple, aren't we? Especially in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, you know, that you are the temple of God. You know, when he talks about, you know, we need to be careful how we build with gold, silver, or precious stone, or, or, or with wood, hay, and stubble, he's really not talking about how we build our lives. He's talking about how we build the temple of God. And so God is in the business of temple building today. And we are part of the process of that. We are both the temple and the priests who participate in the building of that temple. And it's going to reach its final fruition when Jesus returns and we have the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And when you look closely at the new Jerusalem at the end of Revelation, you'll see that it's described as a perfect cube. There's only one other thing in the whole Bible that was a perfect cube, and that was the Holy of Holies in the temple and the tabernacle. And so it's temple language that's being used because God's intention is that the whole earth, being redeemed, will be inhabited by redeemed believers and priests who will serve him and he will dwell among them and his presence will fill this, this planet and heaven and earth will meet and the reality is what the prophets foresaw, that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. We're part of God's great plan, even when we are scattered, even when we wonder, what can I do? And so, in your world, maybe with all the restrictions that COVID brings, how can you serve Jesus? As a priest, you can worship him, you can pray. When, when you pray for your neighbors, you're functioning as a believer priest. When you come with your good works, even though they may see you as a stranger and rather alien, when you do good works to your neighbors, even to those who ostracize you, you are doing something that ultimately is intended to bring glory to God. This is a great day for using our imaginations. How can use God use me now like I've never been used before? But it's all rooted in who you are in Jesus. You see, who you are is rooted in whose you are. Because you belong to Jesus, that transforms who you are. I'm Ray Klutstra. I'm Ray Klutstra because I'm the son of Dirk and Jacoba Klutstra. That relationship, whose I am, transforms me. Now I'm the husband of Gloria Klutstra. That relationship transforms who I am. Your relationship with Jesus transforms who you are. Who you are is rooted in whose you are. Even though we're strangers in this world, that might be how our world looks at us as strange, we're chosen by God, we're a royal priesthood, we're citizens of Jesus' kingdom. Our idea is rooted in our relationship with Jesus.
maybe if I was leading a little group of young beavers this morning, instead of crouching down and asking, who are you and what do you do, I ought to maybe ask, whose are you and what do you do? And if I had the better ability to jump up from a squat, I would jump and cheer and I would say, Jesus, 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 serve him, serve him, serve him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've transformed us. You have made us into those who were not a people, into the people of God. Those who did not know mercy into people who are recipients of your mercy in Jesus Christ. It's because we have a living hope. It's because we're sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. It's because we are born again with an imperishable seed, as Peter says. It's because of all these things that Jesus has done that we are different people in our world. And my, we live in different times right now. And even though we're confused, we don't have to be confused about who we are. We are the people of God in this world. The world may see us as strangers and foreigners, people who are out of step, but we are the seed that Jesus plants to extend his kingdom. Because Jesus is our great high priest, we are living, walking, talking temples and we are a royal priesthood for Jesus, serving our world. Guide us in that service in these critical days so that ultimately we bring you glory. For it's in Christ we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We invite you to follow Jesus with us and join us on mission with him. We'd love for you to connect with us through our website, worship at aemc.com, or on Facebook. Just search for Aylmer EMC.